Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We will be finishing out the chapter, finally, this week. Verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. As you're getting settled there, turning in your Bibles to our sermon text, I want to remind you, because of where we are in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, I want to remind you of what had originally prompted the prayer we're about to encounter in our sermon text. There was a, an extended and glorious interjection, a pause, if you will, by the Apostle Paul to further talk about uh, his stewardship from God, the mystery of the gospel, especially in how it, it affected the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. So, so the first part of chapter 3 was, was really um, an interjection. Paul had, had stopped just short of, of getting to his prayer that he's now going to pray. But if you go back to Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 22, it'll remind you what originally prompted Paul's prayer in the first place. His view of the church, the one new man in Christ Jesus, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, but in which all those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and we all have access to, to the Father through Christ, and Jesus Christ himself is our peace, and now we are not only reconciled to God, we are his, we are his holy nation, we are his household, we are his house, his temple. He said in, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you Gentiles especially, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All of that is what leads Paul to say in Ephesians 3 and verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... And then he breaks off. Let me say some more about my ministry to you Gentiles and how even my chains, my suffering as a prisoner for Christ are, are your glory. You shouldn't be disheartened by this. This is all part of the plan in which the church is on display before heaven and earth. It is displaying the glory and wisdom of God. That was a glorious text, but now he comes back to what he was about to get to, apparently, his prayer for them. 
He had said in chapter 3 and verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he breaks off. Then he comes back in verse 14, our sermon text, and he repeats himself. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth, or probably better the New King James, from whom the whole family in heaven and, and earth is named. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's our sermon text. I'm not going to do justice to it. I'm not going to chase down everything I could from this text, but we will try to cover it nonetheless. The big idea of this text is that the apostle prays that the triune God's glory will dwell within the church. The apostle prays that the triune God's glory will dwell within the church. Let's look at the content of the prayer. First of all, verses 14 through 15, as he approaches the prayer, there's an attitude of abasement before our Father. You know what abasement is? It's deep humility. Uh, I always picture abasement as literally being down on the ground in front of someone or something. And that's what Paul makes a point of doing. Uh, it's not... It's not the most common thing for him when he reports on how he's praying for someone to say, I'm down on my knees. But that's what he says here. An attitude of abasement before our Father. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. First of all, just to understand some things about these verses quickly. There's some wordplay going on. The Greek words for father is patera, and for family, patria. They're part of the same word group, and Paul is, is doing a wordplay with them. I bow my knees before the patera, the father, from whom the whole family, the whole patria, fatherhood, almost you could say, is named God's entire household receives its name, its identity from him. That's the point. He is the head of the household, the father of the family. And this family is our highest possible identity. And this father should receive a reverence and a submission which belong to him alone. He's the highest possible authority anywhere. And he has the power to back up that authority. And he has the love that drives that power. He is our father. There's no one higher than him. No one can 
outrank him. No one can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? And as was said of the Old Testament sanctuary, in the, Old, uh, in the Old Testament, this was often said of the temple, so now God has caused his name to dwell in his family, his house. It's in the universal church that God displays his great name, as we saw last time we were in chapter 3. So, as Paul utters prayer for those who are part of this church, it's only fitting that he expresses deep reverence and submission by bowing his knees. He abases himself before such a father on behalf of such a family, the household and house of God. It's striking that this reflects, especially as when, as we'll see, there's so much temple sort of language that Paul's still going to use in his prayer. It's striking that this reflects Solomon's attitude and posture when he prayed at the dedication of the Old Covenant temple in Jerusalem. 1 Kings 8.22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Skip down some to verse 27 of that text. Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And then at the end of a very long prayer, verse 54 It says, now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. Interesting thematic ties there. Paul is on his knees praying to the Father from whom his household on earth derives its name. Not just the household on earth, but the household in heaven and on earth. The church universal, both those who have already gone to glory, the church triumphant, and those who are still on earth, the church militant. The whole household in heaven and on earth derives its name from God. He is their supreme identity and authority and the one who who can give them what they need. Verse 16 as we get into the prayer itself, there is this is an intercession, first of all, an intercession for inner power through his spirit, through the Father's spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, what is he praying as he's on his knees? He's praying, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he, the Father, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, literally in, your inner, in the inner man. He asks that the Father would give them this strengthening power according to the riches of his glory. What does that mean? It means the riches of his glory, God's full glorious resources are the measuring stick by which Paul wants God to act. Uh, as S.M. Boss said, 
This represents the standard or measurement against which the action is requested. He wants the power at work in the church to be in proportion to the full riches of God's glory. Not a, not a small little power given, but power in proportion to God's riches and glory. Sort of like Paul says to the Philippians in that famous verse, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. According to that standard. <laughs> Same idea. But why do we need power? Why is Paul asking for power? Well, because of what is coming in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. And we will, be, we will start that, that second half of the letter next week, Lord willing. God has foreordained good works which we are to accomplish, Ephesians 2. He's foreordained good works which we, could, which we did not do and we could not do apart from redemption in Christ. And this will be unfolded in chapters 4 through 6. What do these good works look like in everyday life? Proper Christian living is impossible for natural human power. Paul will tell us to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself on the cross for us. That's the kind of love you ought to show to each other. That's not possible. Unless you have God's spirit and power. And Ephesians 6 will confirm that we have a host of supernatural enemies also. We will need God's own armor, not our natural resources. And all we need from God the Father, we have from God the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, it says, is His Spirit, the Father's Spirit. It's His, it's His to, to send out in blessing. And similarly, Paul elsewhere talks about the Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So, long story short, as the church has learned to clearly say, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If we have the Holy Spirit, and we do, as Paul has already affirmed in Ephesians 1, then we have all the power of the triune God at our disposal. But nevertheless, Paul prays that that power might be seen more and more. In action. And notice that this power from the Holy Spirit is in our inner man. That's very interesting, as Paul says, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our outer man, is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And so, this power may not be initially impressive to worldly people with worldly thinking. If they're looking for something that's outwardly impressive, the Apostle Paul was not outwardly impressive in his human frame. He often suffered greatly, but he had God's power at work in his inner man. And that is how God delights to work in his church. He delights that his church on earth follow in the path of their Lord in a path of humiliation and suffering, not 
in a path that's outwardly impressive to the world. And yet, God gets great glory because he is transforming us in the inner man. And from the inner man flows all the blessings of God to us. We will see the outer man transformed one day in the resurrection. But right now, God is targeting our inner man for glory. We can have this glory though our outer self is wasting away. We can have this glory if we are bedridden or if we are mocked and abused. We can still have this glory within, now. So it's an intercession for inner power through the Holy Spirit who is sent from the Father. Then we see the first part of verse 17. The result, well, let me clarify. Um, we talked about an attitude of abasement before the Father which prays this way, an intercession for inner power through the Spirit, and now we have a chain reaction coming from the intercession, from the prayer. If we have God's inner power through the Holy Spirit, there will be a chain reaction. And, and it's the whole package for which Paul is praying. So the next part of the chain reaction is, is the result of Christ's indwelling through our faith. So that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If the Holy Spirit strengthens you by his power in this way, Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith, that is. Christ's indwelling through our faith. Again, if you were to look at the original language, there's um, this word for Christ dwelling within us. It's a word related to those words back in chapter 2 for a building and a, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. S.M. Baugh says, Christ dwelling with his people is further remarkable in that it shows that he is the Lord of the new covenant. As God promises to dwell with his people as the heart of the covenant bond, now we see Christ fulfilling that promise to dwell with his new covenant church. Doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts through faith? If we're believers? Well, yes. But Paul is saying this in the sense of, may it be a reality in every practical aspect of your life. That Christ is at home within you. We'll talk more about that as we go. And he will dwell in your hearts through faith. Harry Up Richard says, The abiding residence and rule of Christ the Master must be the result of faith. A faith which is simply academic will not do. True faith continues to lay hold on Christ and his benefits. Believing in Christ must lead to fellowship with Christ if faith is to reach its ultimate goal. This is of the essence of the perseverance of the saints. It means saturation in Christ. End of quote. Again, we shouldn't have to say this, but we do have to say it. Faith in Christ is not about a one-time agreement made with Christ, and that's it. Faith in Christ is about living with Christ, abiding in Christ, and Christ abiding in you. And everything in your life increasingly is the outflow of a living, vibrant trust in your master and your savior. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The more unbelief there is in your heart, the less Christ will be truly at home in your heart and life. Yes, we believe in the perseverance of the saints and that all true saints will, through many ups and downs, become more and more conformed to Christ. He will be more and more, more and more at home in their hearts. And if Christ is not at all at home in your heart, you do not belong to him. But, but you know what I'm talking about as true believers. That Christ is not always equally in practical aspects at home in your life, is he? There's still much work to be done. That's what Paul's praying for. You can see why I could go so many directions, right? But I'm going to try to tie the text together the way Paul is tying his prayer together. So we go to the rest of verse 17 through the beginning of verse 19. The next part of the chain reaction is the consequence of maturing insight into Christ's love. The consequence of maturing insight into Christ's love. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, as I'll repeat again later, Paul is referring to the fact, first of all, that we have been established in God's love for us in the gospel. And we, we have to build from that foundation. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let's try to break that down a bit. Love. Harry Eppertjord again, he says, Love in the New Testament has its own distinctive features. Used both of God's love for us and consequently of ours for God and for our fellow man, it is characterized by grace and action. This love outstrips all its known Greek counterparts, general affection, family commitment, and physical passion. Jesus sets its active tone in motion, requiring love for enemies. Paul stresses its maturing quality, for faith works itself out through love. Peter underlines its energetic nature. We are to love one another fervently. James majors on its practical quality, for faith without works of love is dead. End of quote. Love itself is a deep topic. But in context of what Paul's saying here, he's focusing on God's love to us in Christ and Christ's love for us that we've already seen in Ephesians. God loved us before the world began and chose us for that reason in Christ. And his son came to die for sinners because of his love for them. That'll be repeated later in, in Ephesians where it says we ought to love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We have to be rooted and grounded in that love. All Christians put down their roots and lay their foundation. That's, that's the two images. The roots of a tree and the foundations of a building. Being rooted and grounded in love. All Christians have put down their roots and lay their foundation in God's free, gracious love for them in Christ, which calls forth their love in return. As Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, referring to God's love for us, as he goes on to explain. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this love, we first encountered this love at the cross of Christ, where we are forever transformed by that love. And this love of God and of Christ has dimensions that we will never cease exploring in our Christian experience, even in the life to come. But Paul wants us to explore it now. How dare we be uninterested in understanding better God's love for us in Christ, and Christ's love for us. Paul uses this, this wording of measurement. That you, already being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, may have ability to comprehend with all the saints, we'll get back to that, what is the breadth and length and height and depth how broad this love is, how long it is, how high and how deep. And to know it, even though it surpasses knowledge, she says. But notice, he says, that you may have strength to comprehend this with all the saints. Harry F. Richard says, the love will not be in isolation, but in fellowship with all believers. You want to understand the love of God better? Yes, do it individually for yourself. But you have to do it individually in a corporate context. In the context of a body, the body of Christ. You will be very spiritually poor if you try to do this alone. And ultimately it won't work. And ultimately if you are part of God's household, he will he will bind you more and more to the rest of the household. To his family, his temple, the church. Each of you have to do this for yourselves, but you have to do it in the community of the saints. It's our job to do this, our delight to, to do this, to understand God's love and experience it along with all the rest of us. With all the saints. Both here and in other churches as well. Just a thought. And notice, to comprehend with all the saints, meaning, at least in a basic way, our Father in Heaven can grant insight into this for all the saints, even the lowliest of saints, even little children. They can have a piercing understanding more and more of the love of God for them in Christ. This is for all the saints. This is not for the super saints. Only. This is not only for those who have been in the faith for 40 years. This is not only for those who have a great intellect. 
or who have been to seminary or something like that. It's for all the saints. It's there for you, Christian. God wants you, yes, you, to understand his love for you in Christ. Every saint and all of them together must be empowered by God's spirit to experience the effects of Christ's royal residence within them. So that once they experience the effects of Christ enthroned within them better and better, so that they will know better and better the love of Christ, even though that love is forever beyond their full comprehension. Now we come to the goal of this chain reaction within our inner man. There's an intercession for inner power through God's spirit with the result that Christ indwells us through our faith with the consequence that we have a maturing insight into Christ's love. Now the goal, and I'll explain why I word it this way in a minute, the goal of a temple filled with God's glory. Remember, Paul just got done saying, chapter 2, we are personally, each of us individually and all of us together, a dwelling for God by the Spirit, his temple. So now, this is how the temple is filled with God's glory when this chain reaction happens more and more. The goal of a temple filled with God's glory, or verse 19, the way he puts it is, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This Original Greek wording for fullness or filling is, is big in Ephesians. It's prominent. The pleroma of God. Ephesians 1, verses, verses 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We preached about that, of course, earlier. We're about to get to Ephesians 4, verses 10 through 13. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, Jesus Christ, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Filling is a big deal in Ephesians. Remember, we've talked about this before, that word group related to fullness or being filled. Well, as many of these people would have already been using a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, they would have encountered that sort of wording a lot when they read of the temple glory of God filling his temple. And that's always been the ultimate goal when God redeems his people from every foe, right? God's great works of redemption always have the ultimate goal of dwelling among them and his glory filling his temple. Have you noticed that the book of Exodus does not end when Pharaoh's army washes up on the shores of the Red Sea. If it were Hollywood, it probably, it probably would have, if Hollywood had been writing it originally. Great, the enemies are gone. 
Roll credits. No. The book of Exodus, Israel's redemption from Egypt, only reaches its satisfying conclusion in God's mind in Exodus 40, when Israel worships God at Sinai as as God had promised. And there, Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now it's complete. God's glory has filled his dwelling place with man. Likewise, when Israel completes their conquest of the promised land under David's covenant dynasty, what happens? David's son Solomon, having achieved rest from all enemies, as it says, he builds a house for the Lord in Jerusalem. We read earlier about Solomon's prayer of dedication for this temple. Second Chronicles 7 tells us what happened when he finished that prayer. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But later, when the kings and the priests violate God's covenant, he leaves. Ezekiel sees in a vision God's glory departing the temple, leaving it to the Babylonians who invade from the north and destroy it. Much more I could go into there in Ezekiel, but Ezekiel also sees a day when God will forever be reconciled to his people by a new covenant. And once he has defeated their every foe, including Gog and Magog from the north, that's another topic, what is the satisfying conclusion? Well, Ezekiel sees a temple filled again with the glory of God. Ezekiel 43, verse 4, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Understandable, isn't it, why the Jews later would be impressed with their temple? And in a day when the Jews were impressed by their massive second temple that Herod the Great had renovated and expanded, Jesus spoke of a greater end-time temple. He said his body, which would be crucified and resurrected, that was the temple of God. Though they would destroy it, God would raise it up. He himself, Jesus, would raise it up in three days. Taking to himself true humanity, including a flesh and blood body, Jesus became the place where man is made right with God by blood atonement. Jesus became the temple of God. And as Paul writes in Ephesians, those united to Jesus by faith, his church, they are the bride and body of Christ. They are the temple and dwelt by God's Spirit. Christ is the head. He's the one and only propitiation for our sins, and we are his church, 
and thus we are the temple of God too. We are God's royal residence where he is seen and worshipped. The end time temple is Christ the mediator and his body the church. So, from that lofty view, put it in simple terms again. As each of us is empowered by God's spirit in our inner man, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. He makes his royal presence felt indeed. That is what a temple is, the royal residence of God on earth. And as Christ dwells within us, we sink our roots down deep in the love of God. That is the source of our vitality. And of our hope and peace and grace. That love is our unshakable foundation. And we begin to wrap our minds and souls around the vast dimensions of that eternal love. And we explore it with the saints of all ages. And as Christ rules our hearts and communes with our spirits in his almighty power and his tender love, we experience that love and we understand it more and more and more. And we'll never get to the end of it. And as one body in Christ, one structure built on him, our cornerstone, we are filled with all the fullness of God. Each of us individually begin to shine with the glory of God as Moses did when he saw that glory. But this time it's not just because we've seen God's glory. It's because the glory has gone inside of us. It has filled us and we are each remade in the image of Christ who is the perfect image of God. So yes, we are finite, we are creatures, but we are filled with all the fullness of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 7-9 Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone referring to the old covenant symbolized by the Ten Commandments if that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If we have Christ within us, we have the fullness of God. And the more Christ takes up residence in every aspect of our lives, the more we are filled to overflowing with God's glory. Because Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And though we never cease to be finite creatures, or, and we never somehow become God, which some, some who call themselves churches have sort of started to say in their theology, no, we don't cross the creator-creature the creator distinction, we don't become God, but we do enter into the eternal communion of love, which the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit eternally have. And so it's somewhat mysterious, but yes, we have the fullness of God within us, individually and together. Turn with me to John 14. This might help. John 14, where Jesus speaks of this in quite simple terms. Verses 15 through 23 of John 14. 
Jesus speaks to his disciples the night before he dies on the cross for them. He says, starting in verse 15 of John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, um, advocate, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. As we live the life of faith, which issues in in loving obedience, we experience this, that God makes his home with us. And we experience the love of God in, in further and further dimensions as we're in this dynamic relationship with him. God so indwells his people that his glory rests on them like the pillar of cloud and fire rested on the tabernacle. That's what the prophets dimly foresaw about the church. I'll read Isaiah 4, verses 5 through 6 from the NIV. But it's speaking of the days which we now live in. Speaking picturesquely of God's people. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there, literally over all its assemblies, all its churches, you could possibly say. He'll create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. John Newton tried to capture this in a hymn. I'll read you three verses. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord the giver never fails from age to age. Round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering, showing that the Lord is near. Thus deriving from their banner light by night and shade by day, safe they feed upon the manna which he gives them when they pray. We'll wrap up verses 20 and 21 as Paul wraps it up. This is a doxology, giving glory to Almighty God in Christ and his church. He says, Paul's finished making requests. Now he expresses his confidence before God. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, 
I like an older version, exceedingly abundantly, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God is able, he's full of power, the idea is, to do more than we could ever ask in prayer. No, wait, let's back up. He's able to do more than we could ever think or conceive or imagine. No, that's not still not accurate. He's powerful to do abundantly more than all that. No, no, no. Far more exceedingly abundantly more than all that we ask or think. That's what Paul is doing in his words here. God is able to do not just better than we pray, better than we could ever imagine. And not just better, exceedingly abundantly better than we could imagine or pray. According to the power at work within us. Why does he say that? Again, in proportion to, in accordance with the power that is at work within us, This is the power that Ephesians 1 says raised Christ from the dead and exalted him as head over all things in heaven and earth for the sake of his church. It's the power Ephesians 2 says raised us from death and sins to life with Christ and to be enthroned with Christ already in the heavenly places. If this power has already done all that and if this power is already at work inside of us, then you and I can't conceive what it will accomplish in this age and the age to come. It's only getting started. That's the point. Almighty God will answer such prayers as Paul prays here because that is his agenda. He will display his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all the universe to see, as we saw earlier in chapter 3. And he will glorify himself in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, age after age, No expiration date. Eternity of ages after eternity of ages, forever and ever. That is the truth, and so be it. Amen, Paul says. So how full of wonder and glory is it when we say the big idea of this text is that the apostle prays that the triune God's glory will dwell within the church. When you say, Jesus has come into my heart, Christ lives in me, do you know what you're saying? I don't think you do. So let's think about the impact of this prayer before we're done. First of all, our apprehension of the triune God. You notice the Trinity pretty prominent in this prayer? The Father, the Spirit, the Son, Jesus Christ. Note how Paul's prayers are saturated with the sweet and powerful awareness of the triune God. Our Christian lives and our Christian devotion and our Christian prayers must be driven by that kind of a conscious experience and fellowship with the triune God. It's a personal thing. Our union 
with three persons. One God, three persons. God, the Lord, has revealed himself in the scriptures, which he breathed out. And that is how we must relate to him, as he has revealed himself to be. Be careful that your conception of God and your imagination of him are thoroughly conformed to how he's revealed himself in scripture. So you're not worshiping the wrong God. Not some philosophy or logical formula that seems reasonable to you. Not some best-selling book or novel that seems to make God so relatable. You can almost hear Jesus calling you to a shack in the woods. Uh, If you don't get that, that's fine. I'm glad you don't get that. But he seems to reveal himself there in such a calming way that affirms you. No! Don't fashion an idol in your heart. And don't buy it from a popular author or even from an ancient philosopher. Now what you can do is you can read books by faithful shepherds of the past. (laughs) If they're teaching according to scripture... I'm not saying don't read books. That's ridiculous. But our ideas about God must ultimately flow from Scripture alone. We worship one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three have perfect eternal love and communion as the one God. And that is, these things are beyond our full comprehension, but we're called into fellowship with this one God in three persons. And that's the wonderful thing. It's wonderful that we can't comprehend him. We can never come to the end of him. Because that's what we're going to spend eternity doing. Knowing and loving him. The wonderful thing is, we'll never come to the end and be bored. We'll never reach the limits of God in his fullness given to us. Paul's prayers call us back to this triune God again and again. The true and living God. We have no power for Christian faith and love unless God the Father grants it, as Paul says here. And God the Father only grants it through God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit works always and only to exalt God the Son, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may know the love of Christ, and all that happens that we may be filled with all the fullness of God to the glory of God the Father. So don't just be sure you're interacting with the true, the triune God, but revel in that interaction. Press in on that interaction. It sounds trite to us, but if we take it in the context of what we've said here from Scripture, yes, God wants a personal relationship with you. Second, think about our approach to intercessory prayer. Paul intercedes on behalf of the Christians at the church at Ephesus. He's interceding. What's our approach to intercessory prayer? At the end of this epistle to the Ephesians, Paul will urge prayer right alongside the armor of God. Ceaseless prayer, in fact. And intercessory prayer is what he emphasizes, praying for all the saints. But here in Ephesians 3, as well as back in Ephesians 1, we already have Paul setting the example of what to pray when 
in supplication for other Christians. But how can we how can we actually pray as Paul prayed without sounding like a parrot, um, without just mimicking him without understanding or insincerely? How can we actually get what made Paul pray that way? How can we sincerely pray with the content and fervency we need? Well, for one thing, we need to meditate on the greatness of God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. That will give us hope to pray big prayers. Commenting on verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, Harry F. Richard writes, Hope transforms the believer's prayer life. There is a human side to this surge of power, a necessary tapping of the divine energy. Prayer is the immediate vehicle of this. It is prayer not merely of word, but also of thought. The idea of a form of religion of saying one's prayers is left far behind. This is dynamic communication. It makes requests with a longing, craving, and desiring that are worthy of the powerful God who is sought. It imagines into dreams far beyond words what this powerful God is able to do. And even then, the object is immeasurably more than this. What praying that is. If we know God, we will have hope that drives our prayers this way. But also, we need to meditate on Scripture until we have God's priorities and love what he loves. And then we can truly ask according to his will, according to his precepts, because we know what delights him. The apostle prays that the triune God's glory will dwell within the church. Is that how you pray? How might our prayers fall short of God's priorities and affections? Well, we might care more about our own little worlds, and it shows when we eagerly pray for our own needs and those of our family and friends, but not for the church, not for the increase and prosperity of Christ's kingdom. To God the Father be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Does that sound totally foreign to our prayers and prayer requests? Or maybe we do pray for the church and its members, but only in terms of maybe visible health and prosperity, or only in terms of things we can easily measure, easily measurable results. Lord, give us all good health. Keep us out of the hospital and rescue us from physical death. Lord, give our churches financial prosperity, attractive buildings and properties. Father, keep our church programs running smoothly. And keep everyone happy with the ministry and give us plenty of members and plenty of visitors and help everyone get along. Well, those things might be well and good, but they can also they can also completely miss the mark of God's priorities. Do we pray for God's power through his spirit in the inner man? Do we pray? That Christ will truly be more and more at home in our hearts. So that we and our souls may be pure and beautiful temples for the enthroned Christ. 
do we pray for maturing experience of and insight into Christ's love? Help this person in church, even if they have to keep going through this, help them to know your love beyond all they ever imagined before this happened. Do we pray that everyone in our church may together be filled with all the fullness of God, filled with God's spirit so that his fruits of righteousness mature in us and mold us into the perfect image of God? Do we pray for the fruit of the spirit to be abundant and mature while the works of the flesh are rooted out and killed? Do we pray that God's glory shine from us individually and congregationally and as the universal church? Whether it means pleasure or pain for us, whether it means outward prosperity or hard adversity for us. Do we pray for the absence of trials or do we rather pray that our God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a difference there. A lot to think about. Do we have God's priorities in our prayer life? Third and last, our approach to Christian virtue. I'll have to hurry here. Paul's prayer in our sermon text has many implications for how we approach Christian virtue. I'll just touch on a few of them in closing. Again, he has to pray that the Father will empower all this because human power is utterly insufficient to produce true Christian virtue. We cannot put a program in place and the right people in place and do all the right things so that, voila, you have Christian virtue. You're like Christ. We can't do it. That's why we pray for it. All the more why we pray for it. Human power is utterly insufficient to produce true Christian virtue. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, as he's talking about his own struggle with sin, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Elsewhere he says, Christ dwells in me, but he says, Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. John 15, 1-11, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Later, he rewords it in that same text. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Remember, true Christian virtue is not simply a matter of outward conduct. It's a matter of transformed hearts. And for sake of time, I'm leaving out some of the scripture references, but you know what Jesus said to the Pharisees about being whitewashed tombs. 
They look good on the outside. Inside, there's all corruption. We need transformed hearts, not just outward conduct. And Christian virtue is not just about abstract ethics. It's about Christ the Lord making making your heart his home. It's not about a self-righteous checklist to fulfill some impersonal standard. It's about renewed hearts and minds that increasingly embrace and please a person, the indwelling Christ. Clinton Arnold says, this new covenant temple is the dwelling place of Christ. He wants to dwell in every area of our lives and exert his reign over every spiritual enemy. The indwelling Christ wants to help us clean out the garbage that soils our temples. He is moved by love for us, and he has the power to help us purify his holy habitation. He says, Robert Munger has written a delightful booklet entitled My Heart, Christ's Home, which captures this aspect of the passage. The book is an extensive allegory of Christ entering a believer's heart at conversion and then systematically going through each room of the house, cleaning and redecorating. Munger brings out the struggle that believers face in allowing Christ to penetrate certain secret areas of their lives where there are sinful attitudes and practices that need to be dealt with. As Christ exercises his power to clean up even the foulest and most rancid rooms, the believer finds greater peace and encouragement in allowing Christ to reign. End of quote. Do you think that's inappropriate? Again, we sort of talked about this. Do you think that's sort of inappropriate to speak as if Christ is more at home with us? Well, Jesus himself talked this way to one of his churches. Jesus addressed a church in Laodicea in which many members mistook their easy lives for spiritual prosperity. My life is going good, so I must be good with God. They needed to make Christ at home in their midst. He said to them, Revelation 3.15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. They are, at least some of them are, his people. He's disciplining them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, dine with him. And he with me. We too could leave the Lord Jesus knocking outside the door. He's there knocking that he may dwell with us and dine with us. He seeks entrance into our insensitive hearts so he can have table fellowship with us. Oh, that Christ, who indwells each of his people, may dwell in our hearts through faith better. Oh, that every idol would be cast from its throne and Christ would be Lord indeed within us. That Emmanuel would be more at home in your heart today than he was when you first welcomed him in. Do you care? 
Do you care that Christ is more at home and His enthroned presence is felt better now in your life than when you first believed? Salvation is not just about eternal security. It's about eternal love and relationship and fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you that you've given us free access to your throne to request such things, and we do request them. Help us, for Jesus' sake, to live for him, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he may dwell in our hearts through faith, and we may understand his love better, and we may be filled with all your fullness, Father. Those outside of Christ, may you bring to him that they may begin this wonderful fellowship as well. Truly, our fellowship is with you, Father, and with your Son, Jesus Christ. To know you is to have eternal life. May we not lose our zest for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.